Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. Look at that. You're so much better the second time. Just give you a little prep and you guys really shine. Um, well, welcome. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. Somewhat predictably, Lawrence stole my whole like joke about kids and getting to sleep in and all those kind of things. But it's fine. It is worth celebrating the fact that we got an hour extra of sunlight this morning. I go for a walk every Sunday morning just so I can process a little bit the, the sermon. And the last few weeks have been walking in the pitch black uh, and it's been fairly miserable. This morning there was this glorious sunshine just raining down on me and all felt well, so, so, so worth celebrating. I also feel, and I'm sorry, I can't resist this, it's a, it's a special day for other reasons today as well, right? Because if you're a football fan, the Broncos are on a bye week, which means what? You don't have to worry about the Broncos losing, and, and you don't have to watch the Broncos. It's like just the best of both worlds. I even saw that that someone was giving away Broncos tickets in Halloween baskets. It was like these mean people sneaking something into poor innocent kids' baskets. Uh, and they were probably cheaper than the full-size candy that you could have bought um, because, well, there we go. And I say that as a bitter Lions fan who has suffered for years and now gets to watch somebody else suffer. So welcome. Welcome to my broken little world. <laughs> We'll survive together. We're starting this new series, Just Another Church. The heartbeat behind this idea is this. We are just one church of many. There is nothing special about South as a church. There are all these wonderful churches that, that God is using all over the place, and yet we are called to be faithful to whatever God has called us to as a community of people. So there is that. We just fit in. with every, We're just part of everything else. Every other church in the neighborhood is doing wonderful things. Uh, we are just another church. And then we are called to be an other church. We are called to say, God, what is it that you made this community to do? It's this movement, this journey into what you might call vision. We have a mission. It's to live in the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. It's on the wall. You can't miss it as you come in. It was designed that way. And yet every organization, every community, and probably every individual also need, needs what's called vision. Uh, Andy Stanley, the pastor, writer, describes it like this. Vision is about what could be and should be. Vision is about what could be and should be. It's an imagination of the future. This is something we learn really early, right? We learn it as individuals growing up. The first time a little girl or boy plans a wedding, probably the girl, but maybe both, uh, there's this dreaming of, I'm going to one day be married. There's this idea, perhaps, of building a house, perhaps as an idea of, of having kids. And then sometimes, heartbreakingly, those visions don't take place. And yet, we, we do this instinctively as individuals, and we do it as communities as well. What, what could be for South? What could be for Littleton? What could be for Denver Metro? What, what should be? Perhaps the key into vision is what breaks your heart? What makes you say, no, God wouldn't have it that way? We get to participate in that and ask what it is for our community. But, but here's the challenge or maybe the tension. I wonder at times if vision isn't somewhat like traveling. It's not somewhat like traveling. Maybe there's a reason that we use all these travel metaphors when we talk about vision and we'll talk about pathways for vision today. But, but think about travel for a moment. 
isn't planning it or at least talking about planning it the easiest part of traveling? All you need to do is is find a location and suddenly you're there with it in your mind. There's this beautiful beach in Barbados and and I'm going to go there and I'm going to feel the water splashing on my toes. I'm going to sit in a hammock and I'm going to do this and this and this. And, And all you think about is just the wonder of that journey. And then you have to get to the airport. And you have to figure out how to park, and you have to get a shuttle, and you have to find your nasty 16-inch coach seat, and you have to have the kid behind you kicking you for however many hours on the journey, and then you have this and this and this and this and this. And and so traveling, planning is the dream. Thinking about it is the dream. Actually doing it can be full of challenges. I had my own experience of this. The first time I came to America to meet Laura, who is, is now my wife, I got to, to O'Hare Airport, possibly like an outpost of hell on earth. It's like one of the, the worst places I've ever been to in my life. And suddenly there's all of these storefronts that I just don't recognize. I, I don't know where to buy food. I, I go to McDonald's just because it was the one thing I recognized. And, and that in itself is a tragedy on a journey like that. And, and I remember in this moment saying, I believe the journey's worth it, but, but in this moment I'd actually like to go home. There's an unfamiliarity with this. I don't want to keep doing this. There's a possibility that the journey at some point ends up like this. (laughs) This is somebody who followed somebody else's vision and is now in the moment of, really? This is what it is? We're stood in an airport at 10 o'clock in the evening and it feels like four in the morning? There is that, that, that moment where you start to say, oh, this is harder than I expected. Specifically around travel, maybe that's the reason some people just don't do it. The travel writer Alan de Botton talk, talks about a Frenchman called De Assantes who lives in a house in Paris and never goes anywhere. He, he lives comfortably, he, he never wants to particularly live out any dreams, and then one day he's hit by this sudden desire to go to London. So he gets his carriage and gets taken to the train station, and on the way there, he stops for a meal at a British cafe and eats some of the questionable British food, and then he moves on to a wine bar and meets some English people staying there and has a conversation, and then finally, as he's about to get onto the the train to head to London, says, well, there's only disappointment to await me now. I've experienced everything that I need to experience, and so he goes back to his house, and he never leaves again. The same, I wonder, I wonder if it's not true about vision. You might say this, vision is rare. Realized vision is even rarer. Sometimes the planning happens, the dream happens, and then you never actually get anywhere because it's harder than you expected to be. There's more disappointments or roadblocks than you expected there to be. And so everybody just says, let's go back to our nice house in Paris and we'll stay there forever. This journey is maybe we're in the easy part now, maybe it gets more difficult as we go. If you're kind of new to this, I'm going to try and catch you up to speed on where we've been over the last few months. We began with a series that we called Crisis. We began with an idea of what is it that's broken with the world. Most of us sense something at times feels off, and, and I grew up as a good evangelical, so I was always told if there's a problem, the answer is Jesus, and, and, and I would say yes with a but. Yes, I do believe fundamentally that Jesus is the answer to the world's struggles and brokenness, and yet often there are felt needs that are closer to the surface that people might say, oh yeah, that for me 
is the thing. We followed the philosopher Cara Paola. She, she sketched out these things. That there's this need for belonging. Where do I fit? There's this need for identity. Who am I? And then there's this need for purpose. What am I called to do in the world? And so we wrestled through those different elements and asked, does the, does the message of Jesus speak into those at all? And so ways that Jesus, he does often speak to those felt needs. And then we tracked with this church in a town called Corinth that was started in about 51 AD. And, and then we looked at a letter written by a guy called Paul in 53 AD as he tracks with this church and says, well, what's going on here? And, and we moved pretty quick. We, we went fast through Corinthians and, and we have a Bible study by a guy, John Samuelson. He does that in the first service. They go slower. If you want to drop in and go slow, you can do that as well. It's a wonderful gift. I dropped in with some of the class the other day and just said, I- I'm teaching Corinthians 13 and 14 today. Where are you guys? And he said, oh, yeah, chapter one. Uh, <laughs> they're going in that beautiful speed that just is it is the, the beauty of Bible study in, in that environment. But we had to move a little faster. We did see this, though. Throughout Corinthians, there's this idea that the, the Corinthian church has a sense of community that welcomed everybody. It touches on that note of belonging. There's this sense of identity in Jesus, and the in Jesus part is so important to them, but it creates the possibility of transformation that actually can transform anybody. Paul even talks about himself as being the most broken person in the community, and yet he's been transformed. And then finally, there's this sense of purpose that shared the love of Jesus with somebody. Maybe you couldn't share it with everybody, but these communities, they were unashamedly pro-Jesus and his love for the world. And so the first churches were the the ones that started the first orphanages and the first uh, places for people going through mental health problems, the first hospitals. This was the church, and it was the heartbeat of the church. They shared that love of Jesus with anybody or somebody at least. And so then my question is, as we move on, something like this. How do we called to be at South in this season, create a space that makes real relations probable and transformation possible. And maybe you could switch the probable and the possible and put them the opposite way around. How do we create a space that feels like you can belong and that somewhere you can experience Jesus who loves you and and experience the transformation he brings? How can I create a space for me, where I can come and I can know I belong with all of my quirks and all of my brokenness, and, and yet somewhere I can be held in that space and I can experience the transformation that Jesus offers and figure out well, what is next for me as a follower of Jesus. I'm not talking about as a pastor. I'm talking about just as someone who follows Jesus along with every single one of you that do that same thing. Somewhere as we'll unpack when we look at this story around Jesus, somewhere this Jesus had this wonderful way of taking people and allowing them to belong. And as they belonged, their their beliefs would change. They would come to believe very deeply in him. And then usually last, their behavior changed. What I sense about church today is this, that we have often flipped that script. We're very interested in how people behave and, and very interested in behavior modification. And then if we see that happen, we, we might get to a point of saying, I think you might believe in Jesus like I do. And then finally the gates open and then there can be belonging. And yet with Jesus, it seems like the belonging always came first. 
And that's why he gathered around him some of the strangest people. His first followers were people that just by nature shouldn't have got on with each other, shouldn't have liked each other, shouldn't have spent time with each other. And yet, because of Jesus and because of what he created, oh, they did. They did. What does it look like to create a place where people can belong and where we can together experience that transformation of Jesus and then do that final thing, be a, be a church this city and world would miss if we just said, no, we, we, we're just kind of giving up. We're not really doing it anymore. Not that we will. That's not the plan. But here we go. Three pathways that I think will help us do that, help us live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And we're going to get to do the first one this week. Environments that feel like coming home. It's the question of belonging, right? It's the question of where do I belong? I grew up with this idea, or at least this is what I was told, that loneliness was essentially a problem that you had to worry about when you got to a certain age. There were plenty of stories about people who experienced loneliness, perhaps in the death of a spouse, uh, a family moving away, but in actual fact, one of the current trends is, is this. Loneliness is increasingly a multi-generation or even a young generation problem. In actual fact, young adults are twice as likely to be lonely as seniors. 79% of adults polled aged 18 to 24 talked about feeling this sense of isolation. When we talk about Jesus' miracles, this hit me. We very rarely talk about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. Like that, in today's term, is, is a startling miracle. There is this sense of isolation and this sense of, I don't belong. And yet, when we tap into Jesus and his stories that he tells and the way he involved himself in society, we see that actually that sense of belonging and community, it seems like it was really important to him. I'm going to read you a passage. It's not going to come up on the screen. And then we're going to look at what precedes that passage and then what comes after it, because that often, for certain writers in the Bible, that, that kind of tells you what they're thinking. It gives you their line of thought. Jesus is at a dinner with a Pharisee. It says, then Jesus, this is Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 12, if you're following me along. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Then one of those at the table with him said this, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I cannot go and I have to go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Maybe you're somewhat familiar with this passage. Maybe you've heard the story before. Maybe if, like me, you grew up in certain church communities, what you heard is that this is essentially a story about who gets to go to heaven when you die. 
And there are elements of that in the story that's broadly in there somewhere. Maybe you heard it as a story about who accepts Jesus and who rejects Jesus on this earth, and there is some of those elements in the story. But just because Jesus is a master teacher, often there's so many things that we can pull from his story. And, and part of our struggle is, as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, we, we tend to give up pretty early on some of the thinking around his story. We just kind of read it once, and we, we kind of say we're done. And that, that's a very un-Jewish thing to do. In actual fact, there's a wonderful story of a Jewish rabbi who grabs three of his followers and says, I want you to read this passage from Scripture and, and come back to me with the questions that you have. And the first one comes back and says, I have five questions. And the second comes back and says, I only have three questions. And the final one comes back and says, well, I only have two questions. And the rabbi looks at each of them and says, how dare you insult the Word of God? I have 96 questions about this text. There's, there's actually questions, questions everywhere when it comes to whether the TV will work or not. Um, <laughs> fortunately, we've got screens all over the place. The, there is this sense that, that we, we don't sometimes ask enough questions, and this parable is rich, because while those applications are there, Luke, this bi biographer of Jesus' life, he chooses to frame this conversation specifically around hospitality specifically about welcoming in the other. Let me show that to you. This, this whole passage is introduced in Luke chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. At the start of this whole thing, Jesus is eating with Pharisees, receiving hospitality. At the end of it, we're told, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The story is about who will get to go to heaven when they die, yes. The story is about whether you receive or accept Jesus, yes. The story is also centrally around who you will welcome in and how broad this kingdom message is. It can include anybody, even the most surprising people. But that can get a little uncomfortable, right? Hospitality can be an uncomfortable ask. We see how uncomfortable it is with the response of one of the Pharisees at the dinner. Jesus begins to talk about practical on-this-earth hospitality. He says to each of them, make sure when you create a meal, invite those that may not get an invite. Find a way to make it broad. Invite those that don't necessarily have a place at the table. And what does the Pharisee do? He does what I think I might do, and maybe you would say you might do. He changes the subject. Jesus is talking about real now, practical on-this-earth and the Pharisee says this, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. And, and Jesus' answer might have been, yes, but we were talking about earth, and we were talking about now, and we were talking about how you treat people around you, and, and, and it kind of reminds me of the responses I give that spiritualize something that actually needs a, a, a physical or maybe a practical 
answer. It's maybe similar to our, our modern day thing where people will come and say, I need you to pray for me. And you say, oh, I'll definitely remember to pray for you during the day, knowing that you might well forget. It's the same thing that we do when we say to people, well, I know that you practically need food, but, but in actual fact, I'm just going to I'm going to say a blessing on you and I'm going to let you go on your way. And in multiple places in the New Testament, this is warned against. And, and here we see it in action. There's a story that's physical and it's on this earth and it's welcoming in the stranger. And this one, this person wants to turn it into just a spiritual conversation. And Jesus, as he so brilliantly does so often, has a story to tell that reflects on that. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. This story has a version in Luke. It also has a version in Matthew, one of Jesus' other biographers. In Matthew, it's a king, and it's a wedding banquet for his son. In Luke, it's a man, and it's a banquet, but it feels like the same story. The same sorts of things happen, so for a moment, we'll treat them as one story. He invited many guests. This host has prepared. This host is excited to welcoming guests, and to invite a guest into a wedding banquet in the first century was to ask them to treat your home as their home. It was to invite them in for not just a few hours. It was to invite them in for multiple days. It was to give them a sense of belonging to a family unit. And so after preparing, the time has come. The servant goes out, is sent out to go and collect people. Come for everything is now ready. And yet, it doesn't go as planned because everyone has an excuse. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five oak of yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. In our 21st century context, most of us might look at those lists and say, those are some pretty reasonable excuses. Like, they, they seem like they might be important. In a first century context, they're kind of insulting reasons. You don't go and you don't buy a field without checking it first. I know we live in Colorado, so maybe some of you had to just buy a house without even seeing it. They go pretty quick here, so you're just like, I'm, just, I'm signed up for whatever's there. Just give me the house. I'll give you money. It's a good deal. But, but here, no, you didn't do that. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. And again, you didn't buy oxen that you hadn't seen. You don't need to go test them urgently. And then the marriage one, well, that seems the most reasonable of all of them, right? And yet in Jewish culture, what would happen is this. You would get married, and then the husband would go away for up to a year, and he would build a house for you to live in. It's not like there's no time whatsoever. It's not like everything is that urgent, and there's no space. These are all kind of kinda nonsense excuses. There's, there's a few people turning to their husbands now saying, you never built me a house. What's going on? We need to go back to this first century context. Build me a nice house. Um, this is all nonsense reasons. And so the servant comes back with those nonsense re reasons, and it makes sense now that the owner, the man, the king, is angry, and he orders his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Same language that Jesus used about physically on this earth now. So the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in. Why? Why compel them? So my house might be full. So my house might be full. This is a man, this is a king representing God who longs for his house to be full of anybody, it seems, that will take him. 
This God invites in the most unusual people to do community with him. A question for you to ponder. Who is the king doing this for? It's, it, it's, there's a couple of answers, right? On one hand, he's doing it for himself. It's his party. When we think about it being a wedding banquet for his son, he's doing it for the son. He's doing it for his son's glory, his son's honor. And yet, yet he's also doing it for the people he's invited. He knows what he has planned for them. He knows how well he's prepared. He knows what he's inviting them to. This is a king that longs to invite in in hospitality. Luke takes this story and said, yes, it's about heaven when you die. Yes, it's about who will accept or receive Jesus, but also it's practically about God and his heart for hospitality for the most unusual people. The story is about God's heart for hospitality. And that intrigues me because I love reading about hospitality. I love doing it. I love receiving it, and I love thinking about how it can be done well. And, and most of you know that now we live in this culture where rarely do we experience good hospitality. I, I heard the other day that there's only one business in the world that actually wants your business anymore, and it's Chick-fil-A. They are the sole company that say, I actually want you to come here. Nobody else actually cares anymore. And I read a book that, that, that captured some of this heartbeat for me. It's by Danny Meyer, the founder of Shake Shack. He talks about how hospitality is ingrained in us from the earliest moments. Welcome in is ingrained in us. In the first few moments of life, a newborn baby receives four things, eye contact, a smile, a hug, and then food. He talks about how that relates to him in his mind, to how he sets up his restaurants to welcome people in, to let them know they want it. And he said, yes, food has to be Great, but, but on the other hand, I recognize this. Sometimes the hug that goes with the food makes it even better. Hospitality is, is an art form. To welcome in people and give them a sense of belonging is an art form. And this is what we see Jesus talking about. And this is what the earliest church did all the time. This is what they were known for. They welcomed people in. They gave people a space. Their heart for hospitality created a sense of community that came with that. They found a place for people to belong, to know that they were safe, know that they could stay. And so my question is with that nebulous word, community, what, what does it mean? Because it's so broad, right? We talk about the tax community. We talk about the school community. We talk about it, it can be narrow, it can be broad, it can be all over the place. What, what does community mean? What, what does community, this thing that the early church did, what does it feel like to, to be able to know that you're in a community, to know that you belong, to know that some of that loneliness that we talked about is endemic can be lost for a moment in a place that you get to be. And it's difficult. In actual fact, even sociologists trying to unpack this said this. This is John Golden Gay. It was found that there was nothing you could identify as the real meaning of the word community, except that it was a warm word. It suggested something nice. Toby Lowe, the sociologist, said the word community has a strange power to it. It conveys a sense of togetherness and positivity. It speaks both of solidarity and of homeliness. And that word home, well, that's an interesting word too, isn't it? Because for some of us, we've longed to find home. Some of us, we didn't grow up with it. Some of us, it feels like it missed us. 
Some of us would long to create it. Some of us we have, and then it feels like it's been snatched away from us for all sorts of different reasons. And yet home seems to be a longing. So just for a second, I'd love for us to pull the thread on that word home and just see what it says to us about a church community of people that gather together. And I'd like to start in the impeccably ridden Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. It's a book that anthropomorphizes a group of animals and their interactions with each other. And at one point, the mole, the central character, has gone off on an adventure with another character, the water rat, and and making his journey through the, the woodland gets a scent of something and he unpacks beautifully the sense of home. There was a moment and he had caught it again and with it this time came recollection in the fullest flood. Home. That was what they meant, those caressing appeals, those soft touches wafted through the air, those invisible little hands pulling and tugging all one way. Now with a rush of old memories, how clearly it stood up before him in the darkness, shabby indeed and small and poorly furnished and yet his the home he had made for himself, the home that he had been so happy to get back to after his day's work, and the home had been happy with him too, evidently, and was missing him and wanting him back and was telling him so through his nose, sorrowfully, reproachfully, but with no bitterness or anger, only with plaintive reminder that it was there and it wanted him. That it was there and it wanted him. The writer Maya Angelou says this, the ache for home lives in all of us the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. And in this moment, if you have it, you can picture it. And if you don't, you probably long for it. Maybe for some of you, there's a specific location for it. You, 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 I say home and you, you have a house that you imagine that somewhere became home and maybe, hopefully, in a dream world, it's the one that you live in now. But it feels like there is a deep longing for that word that it creates some sense in us. And, and Jesus, it seems to do that for too. In John chapter 14, he says this to his followers, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have not told you, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. I've often wondered if Jesus experienced homesickness, if he experienced the loss of community, relationship with his Father, with the Spirit, if, if there was a sense of being on earth was different, distinct, and you see his longing and his voice for home. Oh, my Father's house has many rooms. The picture is there in his mind, and he speaks longingly of that place and longing for his followers to be there with him. And and yet here we are on earth trying to do the best we can with what we have and, and recognizing that over history, somehow the church, the local church, became a place that could be called home for people, could be called a place of belonging long before it was an organization or a building. The church was a place of belonging. It was a place that could be called home. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've found places where church community has been for you, yes, that thing. Maybe you still have it, and maybe you've lost it. But for me, my longing for community is that I might say, yes, I have found it here in this place. And we have a house, we have a building, but what makes it home? How do we create that? What makes a house a home? 
There's all of these iconic houses that we can see on different TV shows or, or movies. There's the Home Alone house, maybe the most iconic of them all, at least if you grew up in the 90s. There's the Full House house. There's the Brady house. There's the Highlands Ranch Mansion, is that? I don't know. It's something like that. It's, it's Downton Abbey house. It's, they're, they're all places, locations that we recognize, but what makes them more than a house? What, what gives them any sense of home-ness? My, my maternal grandmother has worked out or had one of her nephews worked out at a genealogy back to the 11th century, and so she would proudly tell us while she was alive, you realize we used to own a castle? You realize that used to be ours, and this is it. This is Raby Castle, the family seat, and yet I've never stepped foot in it. So it's certainly not home. It might be a house, it might be a castle, but it's not home. What makes a house home? What gives it that sense of belonging? What gives a church community that sense of more than just a building that you go to? What makes it feel like home? Diana Butler Bass says this, a house may be a physical place, but home is inhabited space. Home is the location that shelters our lived experience, but also holds our memories and shapes our desires. Somewhere, she seems to suggest it's actually a choice. It's a choice to participate in a particular way. And, and when you get there, just like with vision, you, you maybe know it when you see it, or maybe you'd say, I know it when I feel it. I know when I'm home. Somewhere, for those of us that are called to course south home, we are invited, I would suggest, to participate in such a way as to make a house a home. We are invited to participate in our house in such a way as to make it home. That's our participation. That's our calling to say, what can we shape here together? How can we give it that sense of belonging? How can I bring my gifts, my energy, my understanding to this thing? How can I bring my relationships to this thing and say, no, this, this is called to be more than a house. It's called to be a home. And the possibility is that that doesn't happen. Matthew, the other writer, has a twist to the ending for us. In Luke's version, as often is the case with Luke, everything end, ends very peacefully. Everything ends very joyfully. It's like they had a meal and everyone celebrated together, and, and Matthew won't have it that way. Matthew has uh, this twist. Matthew 22, verse 11 and 12. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend, the man was speechless. One of the nuances to Jesus' story is this people are pulled together from all sorts of different environments, and somewhere what we don't read is how did they get on? How did they interact? How did the people that they found in the highways and the byways interact with the people they found under the hedges? How did the poor get on with the sick? And, and all of those different ideas, like how did everyone come from all these different places and build community? We're just told to expect that they did somehow. Somehow it worked. Somehow it was fine. And yet, in Matthew's story, there's one person who, who arrives and he's kind of like, meh, not really feeling it. Don't, don't really want to be here. Just I'm here for some reason, but I'm not sure why. That, that's the potential, right, with our own baggage, with whatever we bring from community, whatever sense of brokenness. That, that's the potential. And, and in the language here of wedding clothes, what we need to know is this. In, in this place and time, in this moment in history, this rich person had the job of providing the wedding clothes. The person's been given the clothes. 
Everyone was invited, but he's, he's just, I'm not going to wear them. I'm, I'm turning up different. I'm, I'm going to stand out. Maybe you've been in those moments. Maybe you've been the person, I think I've been the person, where you're in a gathering together and there's just one person who's, who's kind of grumpy. It's like, I'm just, I'm just not feeling this, and everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. And it can destroy the entire thing. Somewhere in Matthew's story, he's concerned to let us know, no, this is a thing where everybody has to bring what they have to community to make it work. We did community here with an incredible person uh, over the last decades, long before I was here, and I got to take part in Anne Cresswell's memorial service. And and during the service, uh, someone read out a letter that she'd written to one of her nieces. She talked about how she loved having people in her home how she loved when they stayed overnight to prepare the room with fresh flowers and to leave books that she more thought they might find interesting. And then at the end, she said this, I love them to leave my home with the belief that they made my day by being here. That they made my day by being here. I think about hospitality in the other way. And yet she, like Anne Creswell, is bringing some intense knowledge here, like to send people away saying, you made my day by living briefly in my house, by eating my food, by drinking my wine, by all of those things, to go away saying, no, it was such a privilege to have you here, that you changed the day for me. What happens when church communities send people away with that sense? By being here, you made our day. By being present in community, you made somebody else's day. What does it take to live like Anne Cresswell lived? Because to me, that taps into that sense of community, which is not just definable, but is I know it when I feel it. I know it when I see it, and it makes me feel warm, and it makes me feel that the language of home is possible. The heartbeat of the passage, so that my house will be full. God calls all people into his community, gifts them with hospitality, and he calls us to do the same. The potential is for a community like South, it needs every one of us to participate. The possibility is it might not be home without you. Might not be home without you. We're gonna come to a table in a moment. We're gonna come to this table in a moment, to communion, to Eucharist, to Mass, to the Lord's Table, however you've known it, however you first experienced it. It is a thing that we often say is individual, and yet it's deeply corporate. It's a thing that Jesus says to do when we gather together. Have you noticed we don't do communion individually? We only do it with other people. We come and we bring all of our brokenness, all of our mess, all of our flaws, and we come to this table and we find healing in it. And yet we come to this table as a group of people together and say, Jesus, you made this group possible by your death and resurrection. The worst that happened to you made this joy happen. It transformed me, it's transforming others, and it's transforming us together. That that is what we come to. And we're going to come to it in a moment in the hope that God continues to shape our community, in the hope that it continues to shape it as a hospitality culture, as an invite culture where people get to know each other in a different way. I had a friend that visited itself just a few weeks ago, and this is what he said, and it both gave me joy and left me with questions. 
said, this is the friendliest church I have been to. The way that you welcome people is a joy and a wonder. And yet I've heard something from other people, which is this. It's welcoming, it's friendly, but it's hard to build deep relationships. It's hard to feel like you're really connected. Hard to feel like you really know people. Isn't that interesting? You can do one and then you can miss the other. My dream for this community, and I'm sure this dream, your dream for this community is that it goes beyond just hospitality, that it welcomes people into something deeper than that. And that it becomes a participating culture. Because you are needed to make that happen. If you'd like, there's three practices I'd love to invite you into. I'd love you to invite you into pausing to notice the people around you. I'd love you as you wander in our foyer space, as you come into services, to actually learn to notice those people around and, and begin to ask what they might need from you to make their day. I'd love to invite you to choose to risk, take a risk by inviting people into more than just this space, but into your own homes. And I know already what easily happens is this. You don't know my home. You don't know my space. There's too much history, there's too much stuff happened, and yet somewhere it feels like we all need to recover the ability to do this, to, to invite people in, to find space for the other. We're all relearning after a pandemic, after all the things that have taken place. I'd love to invite you to choose to take a risk by inviting. The other day we had some first-time visitors that stopped by our welcome table. And one of the things they said was this, as we did the welcome moment and got to know them, they said, well, actually, the people we sat behind already invited us over last week when we snuck in uh, to come over and get bagels with them. Uh, and they said, we, they said, we said yes. And so off they went. And the couple that invited them, whose names I won't mention, also spoke about this and said, you know, they were about the 30th people we'd invited. And they were the first people that said yes. They were the first people that said yes. This kind of dynamic, this kind of relationship takes trust by everyone. It takes risk-taking by everybody, and it seems like the hospitable God takes that risk on us and us, and asks us to take it on others. And then to participate, I'd love to invite you into this. What does it look like for you to take five minutes a day to learn to listen to how God might guide you? Because I think the joy of participating in this way is that it matters that each of us is here on Sunday morning. It matters that you, particularly you, whoever you are, are here because you might just speak to someone and they might hear God through you. It matters that you come and help with the food bank because you might speak to someone in a way that God, they hear God in a way that they never have before. This makes, it, it makes a difference. If you can come, if I can come with this belief that God speaks through us, that's a different sort of community because you didn't come here just to sit in a chair. You came here to participate in a community where you are needed and you matter. The first church wrestled with what it was to do community well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told this, so that when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul wrestles with the fact that a community has taken this table that we're supposed to, we're about to come to, that's supposed to bring unity, and they've made it divisive. They've, they've made it an, uh, an object of, they've made it something that destroys the church. And we're called to come to it in the opposite way. And that's what I'm going to invite us to do. I'm going to invite you to bring all of the ways that you're broken. I'm going to bring all of the ways that I'm broken and messy and complicated. All the ways that hospitality scares me, intimidates me. All the ways that I don't know how to interact with every single person or all of those different fears, concerns. And we're going to come to this table and we're going to take bread and wine and we're going to reflect on the fact that Jesus came to die for us individually and also to make us a community. Let's pray. Jesus, as we prepare our hearts, would you speak to us? Would you remind us that we're made in your image? Flawed and broken, yes, but made in your image. Failures, sinful, yes, but beautifully redeemed. For each one of us to whom the word home causes problems and struggles, for whom inviting another in is terrifying and just so vulnerable. Would you speak to us? For this community that has a house but needs to be a home, would you make it a place of belonging? For this community that provides a welcome would you stretch it into something more? For each one of us that says, I have been welcomed here, but I'm yet to find community here. Would you help us to take brave steps? For each one of us that looks around at a room of strangers, would you help us to find something more than strangers? For each one of us that has never felt like we belong anywhere, would you find us that sense of belonging? If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.